Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, September 30th, 2023. The only podcast that separates the facts from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Senator Dianne Feinstein passes away at 90 years old. More than 50 are killed in multiple mosque attacks in Pakistan. The U.S. accuses China of global information manipulation. Vladimir Putin meets with an ex-Wagner commander. The U.N. says that 2,500 migrants have perished in the Mediterranean this year. Sweden's prime minister meets with the military to address gang violence. Three are killed in twin killing sprees in Rotterdam, Netherlands. U.S. Secretary of State Blinken meets with his New Delhi counterpart amidst the India-Canada row. U.S. General Milley reportedly takes safety measures after Trump's comments. And the U.S. Senate unanimously passes a dress code. In our top story, Senator Dianne Feinstein passes at 90. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Fox News, Wall Street Journal, ABC News, Daily Wire, Washington Post, and New York Times. U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat of California, died Thursday night at her home in Washington, D.C. In a statement, her chief of staff, James Sowell, said she never backed away from a fight for what was just and right and was always willing to work with anyone, even those she disagreed with, if it meant bettering the lives of Californians or the betterment of our nation. Feinstein's office-holding career began in 1978 following the assassinations of San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and the city supervisor Harvey Milk, after which Feinstein became the first female mayor of the city, serving in the position until 1988. She became senator in 1992 to fill a seat vacated by Pete Wilson, who had defeated her in the governor's race. Continuing her track record of firsts, she then became one of the first two women to join the Senate Judiciary Committee, a position she used to successfully push for an assault-style weapons ban in 1994. In 1996, she was one of the 14 senators who voted against the Defense of Marriage Act, which prevented the federal government from recognizing gay marriage. Her record also included voting against a bill to end partial birth abortion, pushing to lift the Senate filibuster to allow pro-abortion legislation to pass, opposing former President Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. She also sponsored the Respect for Marriage Act, which would require both the federal government and state governments to recognize gay marriage. Feinstein, who also served as the first female chair of the Intelligence Committee, was a staunch supporter of the nation's spy agencies. She helped block former President Obama's attempt to repeal the CIA's authority to conduct drone strikes and, after the National Security Agency's secret surveillance scheme was exposed, defended it by saying, quote, it's called protecting America. Feinstein, who had planned to retire at the end of her term in 2025, faced calls to resign as her health grew worse, including a bout with shingles that led to encephalitis causing her to use a wheelchair in the Capitol. As a crowded group of Democrats have already lined up to primary for her seat, California Governor Gavin Newsom must appoint a temporary replacement, who he has previously said will be a black woman. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on our first story today. I'm going to start our first round of narrative spins, beginning with a Democratic narrative provided by Politico. From Democrats Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi to Republican Mitch McConnell, politicians and Americans from all sides can easily cherish the life and legacy of Dianne Feinstein. She was a consensus builder who on Capitol Hill built personal friendships and brought opposing sides together on policy issues, 
yet she always remained true to her core values. She has and will always inspire upcoming leaders, particularly women, on how to act, lead, and govern the right way. We counter that with a Republican narrative coming from PJ Media. Even Republicans can recognize the honorable legacy of Senator Feinstein's career. She had major ideological differences with the GOP, but often reached out across the aisle in spirit of bipartisanship. Unfortunately, jockeying for her successor has been going on for some time within the Democratic Party. As Democratic leadership ages, there seems to be a groundswell to install a new regime of less compromising left-leaning replacements. Now should be a time to remember Feinstein's accomplishments and remember that America cares about getting business done across both parties. And from time to time, we get statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. They have an opinion on this story, and they think that there's a 50% chance that the mean age of the next five U.S. presidents from 2022 to 2040 will be at least 64. So, let's see. When are you, How old are you, Eric? You and I are about the same. 29. We're, we're only we, 29, we so. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, we, yeah. Got, to, we got a long way. Yeah, we've got a long. Yeah. I mean, we I'm got. A, I forgot how old yeah. I was. Yes, I, I thought know. I, was a lot, I thought you and I were a lot older. Yeah, I did, too. Right. It happens you're to right. me all we, the time. You know, we're not. Yeah, we're not even close. Yeah, you, we're, <laughs> <laughs> More than 50 have been killed in multiple mosque attacks in Pakistan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Guardian, Dawn.com and Al Jazeera. Local officials said that at least 52 people were killed and scores more were wounded after a suicide bombing in Mastung in Pakistan's Balochistan province on Friday. The attack took place as hundreds gathered to mark the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad. The celebration is accepted by a majority of Muslims in Pakistan, but not by some religious denominations. Local officials also confirmed that Naz Gishkori, the deputy superintendent of the police in the region was killed in the attack, which authorities have claimed was a suicide blast. He reportedly lost his life as he attempted to stop the assault. Three other police officers were injured. Meanwhile, two further blasts were reported in the Hongu of the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa region, this time targeting a mosque at a police station. Police said that gunfire was exchanged with two attackers but said that blasts nonetheless took place at the entrance of the police station and one a few minutes later inside the mosque. At least five people were killed and 12 more were injured. No group has yet taken responsibility for either bombing. The Tariq-e-Taliban Pakistan, also known as the Pakistani Taliban, issued a statement distancing itself from the attacks. A spokesman said, The goals of Tariq-e-Taliban Pakistan are clear. Mosques, seminaries, schools, and public gatherings are not among our targets. We have nothing to do with today's two blasts, and we strongly condemn them. Some suggested that the Islamic State of Khorasan province, the IS affiliate in Afghanistan and Pakistan, is more likely to be responsible. An IS commander was this month killed in Mastung, prompting a bombing that wounded 11 civilians a few days later. Adam, thank you for those facts. We begin our round of spins with Narrative A coming from Dawn. These heinous terrorist attacks are an attempt at sowing chaos and pushing back against religious tolerance. These assaults call for a swift investigation, and whoever is behind these attacks must be held responsible to the fullest extent of the law. And the spin's going to continue with a Narrative B by South China Morning Post. It's not enough to just hold these culprits responsible. Terrorism is on the rise in the region and will continue to be until preventative action is taken. 
This looks like signing intelligence-sharing agreements with Afghanistan and creating a broad counterterrorism strategy that addresses the structural causes of extremism. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's an 82% chance that Pakistan will recognize the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan before 2030. The United States accuses China of global information manipulation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Guardian, and New York Times. The U.S. State Department on Thursday claimed China is threatening global freedoms by allegedly spending billions of dollars a year to shape perceptions of the country in a large-scale campaign of influence, censorship, and disinformation. The report accuses China of spending billions of dollars to spread disinformation by acquiring stakes in foreign media through, quote, public and non-public means, sponsoring online influencers, and securing distribution agreements promoting unlabeled Chinese government content. The State Department also accused China of data harvesting overseas and targeting specific individuals and organizations, citing public reports and newly acquired government information. The report, which was produced under a congressional mandate, claims Beijing encountered, quote, major setbacks when targeting democratic countries due to local media and civil society pushback, but said, quote, unchecked, Beijing's efforts could result in a sharp contraction of global freedom of expression. The report comes after officials allege that Chinese hackers gained access to the email accounts of Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and other officials this year, stealing 60,000 emails from the State Department alone. Meanwhile, the Chinese embassy in Washington condemned the report, claiming it's a tool aimed at smearing China's domestic and foreign policies. Thank you, Eric. We're going to start off this round of spins with an anti-China narrative provided by CNN. China is waging an information war against liberalism on the global stage through the use of powerful companies such as ByteDance, which owns TikTok. The Chinese government is collecting massive amounts of personal data as Beijing continues to influence global opinion. The U.S. must maintain its posture as the world's leading defender of freedom and civil liberties and do what it can to counter China. We counter that with a pro-China narrative coming from Global Times. The U.S. always falsely accuses China of things it is guilty of doing. China seeks peaceful relations with the U.S. and the West, but the U.S. consistently has maintained an aggressive and provocative posture toward China, especially in recent years. The U.S. is well known for spreading disinformation, surveillance, and its psychological operations, so it's deeply hypocritical and disingenuous for Washington to accuse Beijing of these things. Vladimir Putin meets ex-Wagner commander Andrei Trosev. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, RTE, NBC, BBC News, CNN, and Politico. Russian President Vladimir Putin was this week pictured in a meeting with Andrei Trosev, formerly a senior commander of the Wagner mercenary group led by Yevgeny Prigozhin until his death in a plane crash earlier this year. According to a Kremlin statement on the meeting released on Friday, Putin was quoted as telling Trosev, At the last meeting we talked about you overseeing the formation of volunteer units that can carry out various tasks. First and foremost, of course, in the zone of the special military operation. Russia's preferred way of referring to its war in Ukraine. Putin continued, You yourself fought in such a unit for more than a year. You know what it is how it's done, and you know about the issues that need to be resolved in advance so that combat work goes on in the best and most successful way. 
Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told the RIA news agency that Trosev, also known by his alias Sedoy, meaning gray-haired, now works in the defense ministry. He is a veteran of Russia's wars in Afghanistan and Chechnya and was awarded the Hero of Russia Award for his role in supporting government forces in Syria as a Wagner commander. The move to incorporate him back into Russia's defense ministry comes after Putin suggested that he could lead the Wagner group back in July, shortly after Progrosian left a failed uprising. Wagner fighters were offered a choice of exile in Belarus or to sign contracts with the Russian defense ministry. Earlier this week, Colonel Sergei Cherevanti, a Ukrainian military official, suggested that hundreds of Wagner fighters have been observed fighting again in Russia's military on the front lines of Ukraine. Adam, thank you for those facts. The round of spins will begin with a pro-establishment narrative. It's coming from Reuters. Putin's meeting with Troshev underscores how the Kremlin was attempting to show how the state has now taken control of the Wagner mercenary group after its failed rebellion one of the biggest threats to Putin's leadership in over two decades of power. And that's countered with a pro-Russia narrative provided by TASS. Putin's meeting with Troshev is a demonstration of the leader's pragmatism in dealing with problems. On this occasion, he wanted to put a capable leader in charge in order to continue putting these experienced fighters to good use in the war against Ukraine. The Metaculous Prediction community is busy today, and they've got a nerd narrative for this story as well. They say there's a 97% chance that Vladimir Putin will be president of Russia on January 1st, 2024. According to the United Nations, over 2,500 migrants have been lost to the Mediterranean in 2023. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Voice of America, Associated Press, DW, and the Business Standard. On Thursday, the UN's refugee agency said that more than 2,500 people had died or gone missing while attempting to cross the Mediterranean between January 1st and September 24th. The number of dead and missing migrants in the Mediterranean in the same period last year was 1680. Meanwhile, according to the International Office for Migration data, more than 187,000 migrants had arrived in European countries in pursuit of a better future. Of those who arrived by sea in southern Europe, 130,000 landed in Italy, an increase of 83% over last year's numbers. Tunisia was the departure point for 102,000 migrants crossing the Mediterranean. At the same time, the UN claimed authorities and maritime humanitarian organizations rescued or intercepted approximately 31,000 people at sea. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees also noted that the number of lives lost at sea and on land routes to Europe will continue to rise, as it appears there is no end in sight for this humanitarian crisis. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. We're going to start our spins with a left narrative provided by the European Council of Refugees and Exiles. Southern Europe is currently in the midst of a full-blown refugee crisis. The irregular border crossings into the EU across the Mediterranean have quadrupled in the first quarter of 2023 compared to last year. What are the authorities doing? Malta doesn't respond to distress calls, and Italy is pushing back boats to Libya. It's a deliberate hands-off policy that sees innocent people drown. This perpetual cycle of abuse must end. The right narrative comes from Daily Mail. The refugee and migration problem in the Mediterranean has exposed a solidarity crisis in the EU. There's no mechanism in place to share the responsibility for hosting migrants. 
Consequently, the countries on the southern border are overburdened by the continual influx of migrants and forced to argue with the other nations in the north over which of them should host asylum seekers who reach Europe's shores. Italy and other southern countries can only rescue so many. Sweden's prime minister meets with the military to address gang violence. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, UPI, and Reuters. On Friday, Sweden's Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson announced that the nation's army would support in addressing a recent surge in gang violence that has killed at least 12 people in September alone, following a meeting with armed forces and police officers. This comes after Kristersson gave a rare televised address Thursday to discuss the issue after two people were killed in separate shootings in Stockholm the day before. Early Thursday morning, a woman in her 20s was also killed after a bomb blasted her Uppsala home. While Christensen was cautioned that Sweden's laws needed to be altered to allow increased military support, starting next week, the army will begin supporting police forces with explosives, analysis and logistics, and forensic work. Christensen said that Sweden has never before seen anything like this, adding that other European countries aren't having the same level of problems. He said that Sweden would hunt down and defeat gangs while stressing the severity of the situation. Last year, Christensen found a center-right minority government with the help of the populist Sweden Democrats, ending eight years of social democratic control. Last year, Christensen formed a center-right minority government with the help of the populist Sweden Democrats, ending eight years of social democrat control. Adam, thank you for those facts. Our first spin is a right narrative coming from the Telegraph. Sweden is being transformed before our very eyes, and not for the better. A once beautiful and safe country is now being ravaged by rampant gang violence and a skyrocketing rape rate. Native Swedes aren't committing these crimes, and there's an obvious elephant in the room that many people are afraid to call out for politically correct reasons. The fact is that unfettered migration is turning Sweden and other European nations into third world crime zones. And we're going to spin into a left narrative provided by the decolonial view. People from the right are trying to take power by using racist dog whistles about gang violence to demonize migrants and stoke fear. Sweden is a place for all people, but far-right nationalists seek to exclude people from Sweden and marginalize vulnerable populations. Instead of blaming migrants for gang violence, politicians should focus on addressing the root cause of violence, such as systemic racism, poverty, and discrimination. Once again, the nerds from Bentaculus are giving us a narrative saying there's a 50% chance that the Sweden Democrats will win at least 73 parliamentary seats in the Swedish 2026 general election. Horrible news coming from Rotterdam as a university student kills three in twin shootings. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Voice of America, Associated Press, DW, and the Business Standard. An Erasmus University student killed a 14-year-old girl and her mother in their home before opening fire at Erasmus Medical Center and killing a lecturer in the Dutch city of Rotterdam on Thursday. The 32-year-old suspect, reportedly wearing combat gear and a bulletproof vest, was taken into custody near the medical center. His motive for the twin shooting remains unclear. According to the Dutch police, the gunman, whose identity hasn't been revealed, was known to law enforcement and was, quote, prosecuted and convicted for animal abuse in 2021. It's being probed if the suspect, who was reportedly carrying only one firearm, was a student of the 46-year-old male teacher he shot dead. 
the authorities are treating the killings as targeted acts. While Erasmus Medical Center began readmitting patients Friday, Erasmus University has canceled all planned lessons and is offering to counsel its students. Eric, thank you for sharing the sad facts of that story. We're going to start our spins with a narrative A provided by Amsterdam Fox. Thursday's egregiously violent act is the Netherlands' first mass shooting in a decade, making it an anomaly in a country with some of the world's strictest gun laws. The twin shooting in Rotterdam is undoubtedly a tragedy, but any correlation to mass shooting trends should be taken cautiously. Narrative B comes from Tatler. The shocking surge in gun violence in the Netherlands is a reminder that persistent sadness or hopelessness often pushes people toward mass violence. Dutch society must pay attention to its youth's underlying mental health issues to ensure the country does not undergo such a trauma again. Anthony Blinken meets his Indian counterpart amid the India-Canada rift. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNBC, Indy TV, India Today, Associated Press, and Independent. On Thursday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met India's Foreign Minister Subramanyam Jashankar in Washington, D.C., amid the fallout of Canada's accusation of potential Indian involvement in the assassination of Sikh leader Hardeep Singh Nijar. Canada Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had claimed that there were, quote, credible allegations that New Delhi was involved in the death of Nijar, an advocate for establishing the independent state of Khalistan in Vancouver. India has denied Canada's allegations, though India's foreign ministry previously described the allegations as absurd and motivated. The India-Canada rift over Nijar's murder wasn't mentioned in the State Department's statement of the talks between Jai Shankar and Blinken. The two diplomats discussed multiple issues, quote, including key outcomes of India's G20 presidency and the creation of India-Middle East-Europe economic corridor and its potential to generate transparent, sustainable, and high-standard infrastructure investments. While the controversial matter wasn't reported to have been discussed in the department's statement, the U.S. official, who spoke anonymously, claimed that Blinken urged India to cooperate with the Canadian probe. This comes after Trudeau, who was reportedly attempting to push India into cooperating with the investigation, said he was confident that Blinken would raise the contentious issue with Jai Shankar. Thank you, Adam. Our first spin is coming from The Globe and Mail. It's Narrative A. It's difficult to say what's more shocking, India's alleged involvement in a murder on foreign soil or how Trudeau has approached the issue. Canada has been caught off guard by a lack of vocal support from its allies, especially America, at a time when the global order desperately needs India on its side. Unfortunately for Canada, the dynamics of the new Cold War against China and Russia means that its issues with India aren't worth public confrontation. That's followed with a narrative B provided by the Hindu. The only way out of the spiraling decline in relations between India and Canada is for Trudeau's state to either prove or disprove its allegations, and for India to cooperate with the subsequent investigations. Unless this occurs, ties between the two countries will continue to freefall, creating an incredibly difficult position for businesses, students, and tourism at a time when international unity is paramount. And there's a nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 70% chance that if World War III occurs before the year 2060, the U.S. and India will be on the same side. 
U.S. General Milley reportedly takes safety measures after comments from Trump. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Newsweek, USA Today, CBS, Forbes, and CBC. In an interview with CBS News, General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's scheduled to retire October 1st, said he has taken safety precautions to protect himself and his family since former President Donald Trump last week made a social media post that could have been construed as a threat toward Milley. Trump's post on Truth Social last week called Milley telling his Chinese counterpart he would warn China of an imminent attack by the Trump administration a treasonous act with catastrophic geopolitical implications and also said that in times gone by, it would have been worthy of execution. Trump also called Milley a woke train wreck. Milley declined to comment directly, instead saying, quote, This military, this soldier, me, will never turn our back on the Constitution. CBS on Sunday will air the full interview, which includes Milley's calls to Chinese General Li Zhuajing in 2020, not only proper but necessary to avert a war. Trump nominated Milley for his post in 2019, but the relationship deteriorated, particularly after Milley was among those who walked with Trump to a church in June 2020 during the George Floyd protests. Milley apologized for giving the impression the military was involved in, quote, domestic politics. Recently, Trump's rhetoric on Truth Social has criticized judges, prosecutors, and special counsel Jack Smith. Eric, thanks for the facts on that story. We're going to start these spins with an anti-Trump narrative provided by Guardian. Milley is right to be concerned for his safety. Trump is unhinged and has lost control of his authoritarian tendencies. His threats of violence against Milley, Comcast, the owners of NBC and MSNBC, government officials, or participants in his prosecutions shouldn't be treated as individual incidents. They're evidence of his desire to make violence a normalized part of American life. We counter that with a pro-Trump narrative coming from Town Hall. Milley personifies all aspects of representing the establishment and shunning former President Trump. His treasonous, secret conversations with China merit investigation and prosecution, as do his failures during the Afghanistan withdrawal. The former president is simply pointing out these obvious and important facts. And the Metaculous Prediction community is going to wrap up this spin with a nerd narrative. They think that there's a 40% chance that Trump would win a 2024 presidential election matchup with Biden. In our final story today, the U.S. Senate formalizes a dress code. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Associated Press, BBC News, Washington Post, and ABC News. Led by Senators Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, and Mitt Romney, the Republican from Utah, the U.S. Senate on Wednesday unanimously passed a formal dress code that requires members to wear business attire on the floor, including a coat, tie, and slacks for men. The new resolution comes a week after Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the Democrat from New York, issued an informal guidance that senators could wear what they want while voting or speaking in the chamber. Schumer's policy was seen as an accommodation for Senator John Fetterman, the Democrat from Pennsylvania, who has been consistently wearing a hoodie and shorts since his return to work in April for treatment from clinical depression. Romney said on the Senate floor that the resolution is meant to get senators to show a level of dignity and respect, which is consistent with the sacrifice they made and the beauty of the surroundings. While the Senate was addressing its dress code, the likelihood of a government shutdown that would affect millions of people continued to loom over Congress. Adam, thanks for those facts. We have two spins that have emerged, beginning with an establishment critical narrative coming from Boston Globe. 
Dress codes anywhere are an absurd means to exclude certain groups of people from participating in systems of power. But in the Senate, it's an even more egregious waste of time considering how many more important things to be worrying about. If Fetterman's constituents don't care how he dresses, his colleagues shouldn't either. The Senate should be focused on things like the looming government shutdown. And PJ Media is going to wrap up the podcast today with a pro-establishment narrative. Elected senators should have some dignity and dress respectfully when voting on life-and-death legislation. Senators who don't have enough respect to do so are an embarrassment to the institution. Luckily, Schumer's attempt at rolling back decorum was rebuked, and some modicum of etiquette has been restored to the hollowed halls of governance. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, September 30th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. And for each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on, and then all the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news. You can also download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.